If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, our text this evening, verses 4 to 9 of this chapter. We've been working our way through these different texts and numbers. Uh, It wasn't intentional to pick all the complaining scenes. It's just the way numbers is. In between these scenes in which God's people uh, complain against God and against God's leader, Moses, Interspliced with those scenes are, are other scenes concerning um, the equipping of sacrifices or uh, the work of the high priest or um, different things that Moses is called to do. Um, here in chapter 21, we once again have a kind of complaining scene. But what we really have here is a picture of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Um, this shadow scene that has an importance for God's people as they experience it actually is pointing us forward to the cross and beyond that to us today. But in order for us to see this, we, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you uh, that you give us your word. And these things are not simply examples for us of particular principles. Rather, these stories that we find here in the book of Numbers, they serve as shadows that are stuck to someone, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to open our eyes of faith tonight, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. Lord, we ask, let us see Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. So Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among his people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone... He would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So remember J.M. Barry's classic children's story, Peter Pan? Do you remember how the story began? It starts with Nana, the dog who was a nurse. And, and Nana captures Peter's shadow. Mrs. Darling found the shadow and and she put the shadow outside, hung it out the window. But, but she was worried that it simply looked like dirty washing. And so she rolled the shadow up and she put it in a drawer. Finally, Peter returned and he was bitterly upset that he couldn't get his shadow stuck back on. See, do you remember 
How did they get the shadow to stick to Peter once again? Well, that's when Wendy sewed it back on. And Barry writes, soon his shadow was behaving properly, though it was a little creased. Of course, we know we can't lose our shadows. We can't lose them like Peter did. Shadows go with the people who make them. No matter if it's a long shadow cast by the the early morning or late afternoon sun, or whether it's the short shadow that, that might happen at noon, we know that shadows go with people. And we don't really look at the shadows anyway, do we? We look from the shadow to the person who stuck to them. I think that's important to remember as we come to this scene. To be sure, this scene that we've read together, it was relevant to God's people in its own time as God continued to deal with their rebellious hearts. But this scene and and the bronze snake held up on the cross of wood, it's a shadow that is stuck to a real person. And as we look at the shadow, we are led from the shadow back to the person to whom the shadow is stuck. This bronze snake and the shadow it casts, it takes us to Jesus Christ himself. Of course, it's not surprising for us in this passage to hear God's people once again issuing complaints. After all, if we had read to this point, and we've touched on many of these passages already in our study, we would have heard them complaining over and again. In Numbers chapter 11, uh, they first begin complaining against the Lord and against Moses. We saw them complaining in Numbers 12, led by Miriam, and her complaining against Moses. They complain again, God's people do, when the scouts return and they bring an evil report concerning the promised land in Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers 16, Korin, Dathan, and Abiram, they rebel against the Lord, and and the Lord swallows them up in the earth. And, And then Israel complains against Moses and Aaron for what happened to these three men. And last week, we heard God's people complain again, In Numbers chapter 20, driving Moses to anger over the rebellion. And instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock twice. But here we are again. They are complaining even after a tremendous victory over the Canaanites. The first three verses of this chapter describe a tremendous victory. And and the king of Arad, the king of the Canaanites, is utterly destroyed. It's a remarkable victory. But when you get to verse 4... It tells you that they're impatient. The people have become impatient. Why? Well, because they were forced to go south of Edom and go around Edom in order to approach the Jordan River from the east. And and as they become impatient, they begin to complain. The people spoke against God, Moses said, and against Moses. And as they complained... God's people can't see things clearly anymore. As they complain, they long for the past. What do they say? They say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We've seen that complaint before. The implication of it is we would have been better back in Egypt. They long for the past and they're bitter about the present. There's no food, there's no water, and we we loathe this worthless food. Of course, they're, they're calling the manna worthless. They're calling the quail worthless. The food that God was providing them day after day, they're bitter about the present. Now, I don't know about you, but I recognize myself in those two things. When I start to complain, this is what I do. 
I long for the past, for some golden period back there when everything was happy and when all was well. And it seemed like a kind of golden age for me. And I'm profoundly bitter about the present, complaining violently against what I'm experiencing now, and, it, and even complaining against God's good gifts that he's given to me. That, that's what God's people are doing. And finally, God himself has had enough, which, which leads to consequences, a, a form of condemnation, which happens in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Now, there's all sorts of discussion in the commentator, over, commentaries over what kind of snakes these were. Uh, obviously, they were very poisonous. The word there suggests, as the ESV translates it, they were fiery serpents because their, their bite seemed to bring a kind of a fiery complaint, that this burning sensation from the snake bite upon the human skin that radiated out as the poison moved through, it, it soon became deadly. But of course, behind these serpents with their fiery bite was the fiery anger of God. If we had read Numbers 11 together, you would have seen there Moses writing, when the Lord heard it, that is their complaint, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them. Here, the condemnation of their sin, the consequences for their sin was equally fiery. They were experiencing the judicial anger of God with these, these serpents, these snakes that have come upon, upon them. And it, and it teaches us, doesn't it, that there are consequences for sin. Not just for their sin, but for our sin. After all, these Israelites were the people of God. They were redeemed from Egypt, redeemed from the house of slavery, brought out of Egypt. They were, they were circumcised. They had God's law. They had the tabernacle. They were being led through the wilderness still 40 years later with a, fill, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And yet when they complained against God, when they complained against his worthless food, when they complained against his servant Moses, there was consequences for their sin. This time, the consequences for their sinning, it got their attention. And it led them to confession, doesn't it? Verse 7, they come to Moses and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. All of their sins, past, present, and future... They're set on display before them. They realize that this pattern has been going on since chapter 11. This time they come to Moses and they freely confess. They've, they've sinned against God. Of course, this won't be the final time. There's yet one more rebellion in store in their story here in Numbers. But they recognize not only that they've sinned, they also recognize they need a mediator. They say to Moses, pray to the Lord. They need someone to stand between the judicial anger of God and themselves. Someone to mediate between the two. Someone to stand between God and them. God's wrath and God's anger, God's condemnation, too much. It's destroying them. They flee to Moses and they beg him to mediate. And so Moses goes to God and he prays once again for the people. And in response, God gives some unique instructions 
that involves a cross. God, God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and to set it on a pole so that, so that everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. And there, as, as the people hung between life and death, they saw this, this bronze snake that in the sun seemed to have a kind of fiery appearance. It represented their sin. And as they looked upon this one held between heaven and earth, suspended as it were on a cross, on a wooden pole, as they looked to the representation of their sin and believed the promise behind, they lived. This mediation, this intercession, this making atonement, it actually reminds us of a, of a previous rebellion. In Numbers chapter 16, after God brought judgment upon Korah and his followers, Number 16, verse 41 says, The whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. In response, God sent a plague as a judgment against the people. But there in the middle of the assembly, Aaron, as God's high priest, he offered incense. And the incense, Moses writes, made atonement for them. Aaron stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. Here in Numbers 21, in a similar fashion, After the incense of Moses' prayer had gone to God, the Lord instructed that that the bronze serpent be suspended so that those who were between life and death might be saved if they looked at that bronze serpent, but more if they looked to the promise in faith. As they believed in the promise of God, as they heard the word of God, when they believed the promise, they looked and they lived. They were delivered from their sin, delivered from the consequences of their sin, and they were set free. Now, these are shadows. These shadows, they they point to someone else, someone else to whom they might stick. We're going to see this next Sunday morning. Jesus on the rooftop is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And on that day we call Good Friday, Jesus was lifted up on the cross. As human beings suspended between between the glory and the flame, we look at that dying one lifted up between heaven and earth, lifted up as one in our image and bearing our condemnation, the consequences of our sin, And we hear God's promise that whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him in faith, might live. For here's one who came as our mediator. The one who stands between God's just condemnation and our sinful, rebellious complaints and passions. Jesus is the one who bears God's wrath for those who trust in him. He stands between God's condemnation and us. He suffers and dies We trust in him and we receive life, life of the promised land. And all we have to do to receive this life is look and live. It was a cold winter's day in January 1850. A young man was struggling through the snow one Sunday morning when he finally stopped at a primitive Methodist chapel. It was service time and so he went in. The young man later wrote in his autobiography, the the minister didn't come that morning. 
he was snowed up, I suppose, at last, after some delay, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. After announcing his text and working it over for about 10 minutes, the preacher fixed his eyes on the young man. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. As the young man later reflected, well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. The preacher continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this very moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look to him and live. And that day, Charles Spurgeon did look. He did look to Jesus Christ. He did put his faith in him. And God used him to help thousands of others to look to Jesus. But these promises found in texts like Numbers 21, they're not just for God's people in in the Old Testament and not just for God's people in times gone by like Charles Spurgeon, not just for others in this sanctuary, they're for you. For you and your particularity. You with all of your sin, with the poison of of sin in your veins, with your complaints and the rebellion still in your heart. Hear God's promise for you. If you look to Jesus, if you put your wholehearted faith in him as your mediator, as the one who stands between God's anger and your sin, if you look to him, God promises you life. Not just life in the here and now, but eternal life, new creation life, real life, far more real than you and I could ever know in this life. That's the life that's promised. And all you need to do is to look to Jesus, who fills full the meaning of this text. He's calling to you to look and live. Amen. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we do bless you for this gospel text and these gospel promises. And indeed, as your people this night who come to you in in trust and in confidence, we come looking and desiring to live. And so, Lord Jesus, please meet us. By your Spirit, open our eyes of faith that we might see you. And seeing you might trust in you. It might rest our hearts in you once again as our faithful Savior. Lord, may you grow bigger in our sight moment by moment. May we become smaller. May we love our sin far less. And may we love you far more. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. And taking our worship booklets, there you'll find we will feast in the house of Zion. 